Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Thank you so much for tuning in to that Gabby Roslin podcast. Russell T. Davis is one of the most talented souls around. He's created the most watchable television and was the person who brought back Doctor Who. He wrote the groundbreaking Queer as Folk, a very English scandal starring Hugh Grant and Ben Whishaw, Years and Years starring Emma Thompson, and Channel 4's biggest ever box set launch, which is available to watch now, called It's a Sin. It is, hands down, the best television programme I have ever seen. I think it is outstanding. It's remarkable. We, of course, talk about all of those shows, working with pop stars, and how his instincts told him to turn down the chance to work with Star Wars genius George Lucas. So many fascinating tales in this episode. Enjoy. And I love you so. <laughs> People ask me how, how I've lived till now. I tell them I don't know. Hello, darling. Oh, you've made <laughs> my day. Singing mood. Oh, let's sing. <laughs> let's just keep singing. Lovely, lovely, Russell. The man. I see. I think if we were to go up in a competition about who loved Telly more, who do you yes. think would win? You or I'd me. wrestle you to the ground. I'd wrestle you to the ground. I would win. I would come up with trivia. I would remember shows such as Leslie Joseph's Rumble. No one remembers that show. <laughs> no. Leslie Joseph. Leslie Joseph made a show, but she was a, she was a wrestling manager called Rumble. It somehow slid off the mind of the entire country. <laughs> she was a wrestling manager. A wrestling manager. This went out on Saturday nights in prime time. When Rumble. was this? What was it? The eighties. Now let me think. Let me think. Let me think. Mid nineties. Um, yeah, mid nineties. I would say. It's weird because I mean, I love Leslie Joseph. It was a terrible show, and you know, like terrible shows are normally remembered as terrible shows. They're fated and celebrated. We'd sit here hooting about it. This was so bad. It vanished. It vanished from the mind. That is incredible. You see, because I thought it's very funny because, you know, whenever you're asked to go and I won't do it, I say no every time for to mastermind. Yes. And they say, what would you talk about? And I just said TV. And they went, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but what? TV. I love TV. I See, I when I saw this quote from the delight that is Frank Cottrell Boyce, what a lovely oh. man. He the says, loveliest, yeah. oh my good. No, no, you're the loveliest. Um, <laughs> so that's it. You're the loveliest. Until I speak to him and then, of course, he will be. Yes. No, 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 you really are. Um, he, he says of you, the greatest contribution to British TV because you are saving it from extinction. Do you think that TV oh, is... Oh, bless Frank. Well, is it heading that way? Oh, I think, I think the BBC is right now in front of us. I don't think it is. I think, in fact, I think it's... Um, sitting here in drama we're in a golden age and it's getting goldener I mean the amount of you know the amount of author owned personal 
drama pieces that are being broadcast is is ten times the number that they were in the sixties. People say play for today was in the sixties was was the height of television. Um, we're getting series like that every, almost every week now, not quite every week, but um, you know, I think I think it's in a glorious state. The the state of the broadcasters is not so magnificent, and I do think. Do you know what? I'm kind of given up fighting. I've been saying the BBC's doomed for so long that now I'm sitting back thinking, I'll be 60 soon. I had the best of it. Well done. Bye-bye. But you're not going to stop. terrible. No, 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 no. I'll keep campaigning. But, well, it's not what a good me campaigning does. But um, I just will sit... Gabby, we have to sit there and remember the good old days. And they are good old days. They're right now. No, I think every every era of television, you know, when people say, my, you know, my husband often says, oh, it's not like those golden days. I go, no, you know what? Each yeah. era is a golden era of television because, probably yes. because I love it so deeply. But, you know, going back over the things, I didn't realise, now, lots of people that listen to this will have no idea about this show, but why don't you, was a show oh, that told yes. you to turn the telly off. Why don't you just switch off your television set and go out and do something less boring instead? I worked on that for about five years. I don't think I've ever worked on a show for so long. I My first job, my very first job in television, I literally walked into a television studio at BBC Wales. The cameras, the boom mics, the, the gallery. Oh, and that, and that was Why Don't You? And it was a programme, for those who don't remember, although it ran for about 20 years, I think. It was a programme presented by children. There were no adults in it. And it was things to do in your summer holidays. And, um... Oh, it was fun to work on. It was so lovely. And, you know, the glorious thing, Gabby, you might know this, is, is that when you're starting out in television, you need to learn everything. And children's is fantastic for that because children's, doesn't, children's television doesn't have much money. So within about six months of working at the BBC, I've done studios, I've been on location, I've done film, I've done VT, I've done the dub, I've done editing. Wonderful, completely wonderful training ground. For me, the greatest gift, yeah, three years at college, I loved, loved, loved. But then starting out in kids' television, for two years there was nothing yeah. greater what do I just learned you learned yes. so much through that but did you fall in love then or were you in love with television before that oh I was before it was like it was it was my my thing it was it was when everyone else was running around whatever you're doing as kids I was just watching television I loved it my parents were very very strangely respectful of television they never turned it off and they let me watch anything I, I was there in the 60s watching plays, those play for today's with nudity and murder and death. And, um, you know, I think I was 13 years old or 12 years old watching I, Claudius, which is one of the strongest, most magnificent things, dramas you'll ever see. And they never they never said, they'll turn it off. They never said, they'll go to bed. Or they never said, oh, that's too adult for it. They were very conservative in all other ways, but they had a kind of, they had a kind of old-fashioned respect for a broadcaster. They were a BBC audience in that sense, that if it was being shown, therefore it was watchable. So I watched anything and everything. I wasn't just watching I, Claudius. I was equally watching Wacky Races at the same time. Oh, how wonderful. <laughs> See, I, I mean, I, hearing you talk about television, I can hear the love that you have for it. But So obviously, we, you know where we're going with this. We're going to Doctor Who, and I know we're leaping ahead because we're going to go backwards and forwards. But yeah. Doctor Who is one of those things that... Because I was aware of your writing for years, I, and you know that I yeah. adore you. But, but Doctor <laughs> Who sort you. of brought you to... to Anybody who watched television, suddenly everybody knew who you were because you were the man that brought back Doctor Who. So you became, I'm going to use that horrible C word, celebrity. But you became a celebrity alongside the fact that you were the man that brought back Doctor Who. 
It's very odd, isn't it? Because as a writer, you, you become a writer to just basically sit at home and not see anyone. And Doctor Who is such a star maker of a show. And it, it literally is. You touch it and boom, you take off. And, and also, it's the way television is changing. And I do love the fact that we're all... There's so much behind-the-scenes material now, whether it used to be on DVDs or behind-the-scenes programmes or or just talking on, on, on breakfast television or whatever, or talking to you now. There never used to be this. When I was a kid, you, television just be like magic. It came and it went yes. and you never knew <laughs> how it existed. Now, I like the fact that we talk about it. In the What I like is the fact that the job of a writer is visible now. You can sit at home and think, oh, yes, I'll be like him. I'll be like her. I'll be like Sally Wainwright. I'll be like Paul Abbott. I'll be like Michaela Cole. And visible now. And you can, and that helps ambition, I think. To be seen is a great thing because it encourages children growing up to do the same thing. So I'm all for that. It's that it didn't necessarily mean I was dying to shove my face on camera night and day. But, um, and the tricky thing about Doctor Who was actually also, it's only got two lead characters who were very busy making 13 hours of television. So they're, they're busier than most actors are. So the, the demand for interviews and the demand for material was ferocious. Not just me, our designers would be interviewed, our costume designers and the directors, everyone had to kind of fill in the gap and, and make all this Doctor Who content by putting ourselves on camera and going, yap, yap, yap. <laughs> but I'm delighted for the yap, yap, yap. But what's so amazing is that my 13-year-old loves it and will grow up with that love of Doctor Who as I had as a child, and that my dad, who's in his 80s, loves Doctor Who, and that she, at at 13, will sit with her grandfather in his 80s and they discuss the latest Doctor Who. You did that. (laughs) You brought generations together. Thank you, sir. (laughs) happy. And people said it would never work. There were so many people queuing up to say it could never work. But I loved it. I loved it as a child. That little, oh my goodness, there was like proper research done at BBC Worldwide. Not a BBC, as you know, there's a difference. BBC Worldwide, the business commerce side. They did a piece of research saying that... and I can see where they were coming from. Their research said children will never want to watch something that their parents love. That, that sentence makes sense. You know, you kind of go, oh, right. They came out with that research yeah. like in mid, mid-production. And, oh, my heart went into my boots thinking, oh, my goodness. But it was wrong. It was wrong. And exactly the opposite happened. I remember the week before the Dalek episode. Uh, the very first Dalek episode, and and we and and there was all this excitement in the air, and I bumped into lovely Craig Cash, and Craig Cash said uh, said, "Oh, my children watching that," and they got so excited, and I said, "Oh, you don't know what a Dalek is," and they got all excited. Oh, tell us about it, Dad, and it just kind of proved that there was this game going on, this great game between parents and children that they the children loved the fact that the parents knew this mythology, and 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 and, and the parents loved passing it on to the children, so. It's lovely. What I mean, I'll never have times like that ever again. It was absolutely gorgeous. Why does it work? Why does Doctor Who work so well? Oh, Gabby. Um, if I knew that, I'd have, I'd have, I'd have one that was my own copyright. It's been all those years working on something that the BBC owned. But, um, I mean, it can change. It can be, it, it, it's such a good-hearted adventure story. And I think it's, it, it works because it's got the full range of emotions. It's, um, it's funny. I, I do think it's it's written to a very high level. It's one of the most intelligent series you'll ever um, you'll ever watch because it has to pull so many. It's so unusual in that you have a lead character who could who's so brilliant 
and so clever, not just as science, but art and biology and anything you want to name, who travels around in the, the most powerful machine in the universe, a time machine. So in theory, stories should last two minutes. He should step out of the TARDIS and go, oh, that's the Cybermen, they're invading. Uh, if you press that button, it'll stop them. Bye-bye. Because <laughs> that's, that's essentially what a Doctor Who story is. So actually, when he steps out of the TARDIS, you kind of have to tap dance like crazy and be madly entertaining and diverting in order for the Doctor not to solve the problem in two minutes. And so you come out, it has to be highly imaginative. You have to use every resource that you've got, every speck of imagination that you've got has to be poured into 45 minutes in order to stop the lead character bringing the drama to a close. It's very unusual. And um, I do the great, great television programmes do have geniuses at their centre like that, like Sherlock, like Jane Tennyson, even like Del Boy. That's an unusual name to throw in, but what an extraordinary, witty, funny character. You have, If a show has something extraordinary at the centre like that, then it can last all these years. Amazing. They have to have heart, don't they? And Doctor Who has heart. Oh, when I talk about writing it to the to to the, your full capacity, I mean heart as well. It's not just inventing monsters and chases and explosions. Yeah. It's pouring your heart into it, making you making people cry, making them laugh. I do think. I think you know. We all know. We can all name Doctor Who moments where companions leaving that 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 leave the space sad. But I know, but often not talked about is how witty the show is, how funny yes. it is, how entertaining that is on a Saturday night. It's so much fun because he's going in there. And he's not a soldier. He's not. He, he, he doesn't have a job to do. He doesn't have to answer to anyone. Um, he's just morally sound. That's all. And within the, within that, he loves what he does. And she loves what he does. I don't mean to exclude Jodie there. The, the character can be anything now. And that's just joyous. There's a joy at its heart, which makes it a joy to work on. I think alongside James Bond, those are the two, because everybody always says, who's the next James Bond? Who's the next Doctor Who? That's pretty yeah. darn something, isn't it? You know, James Bond is a huge international franchise. And Doctor Who, in our eyes, because we're very we're very protective and possessive of it, I suppose, in the UK. Yes. It's something that we all watched when we were kids here in the UK. And yet the world wants to know, and you do, I know there's huge conventions around the world, but there's something, the two characters, they sort of go, they've got to meet. Well, yes, that's what you've got to do. James oh. Bond and Doctor Who can meet. So that's where you're going. I was thinking you were about to suggest me as the next James Bond. but that, Definitely, I, yeah. Maybe not. But that's happening. I thought I wasn't allowed to talk about it. <laughs> but go to the bookies now. Actually, Doctor Who meets James Bond, that would be... Do you know, I'm amazed no... Well, I was going to say no No children need special has ever even suggested that. But I think, I think, I think approaching the James Bond empire would be a bit like approaching... The moon. Could you go in a slightly different orbit? Well, come on, no, no, come thanks. on. You're you're bigger than any of the broccolis, you know. Let's be honest. In my eyes, you went to LA and you were offered Star Wars the TV series, weren't you? Oh, only slightly. No, I turned down a meeting to do with that. Um, and it, it wasn't The Mandalorian. It was it was it was a series that George uh, Lucas. Oh, this is rude. He's like gossiping behind his back, but I've never actually met him. Uh, George Lucas set up a series before he sold the Star Wars Empire. He set up his own television series. And do you know what? I've got a very good instinct and something I have. I just have. And something told me that series will never get made. And it wasn't. And they wrote about 50 episodes of it. And all those episodes are sitting on a shelf. They never got made. Then he sold Star Wars to whoever it was, Fox or whatever he sold it to. And they've gone on to make their own shows. And that series never existed. Do you know, I kind of, it's funny looking back. I knew 
I just thought that won't happen, which is a strange thing to think about George Lucas, you know, because he makes things happen. Though. Yeah, but it's because you weren't involved, you see. <laughs> Do you think? That's what it was. Gabby, I like the cut of your jib. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, um, you know, you've been through incredibly sad stuff and you've been very open about that. Only two years ago, um, lovely Andrew died. But, but you also, you really, I get the feeling, I'm mean, the times I've interviewed you and the times I've met you, you enjoy life, don't you? Oh, I can be as miserable as the next one. I've got, I've got to say, but actually, yes. Do you know? It's, it's. I can't. I, I, I kind of put it down to being six foot six. Do you know? I am six foot six, and that's like and now these days. A lot of people are six foot six. When I was young, they weren't six foot six. Literally, generations have grown up around me, so that's quite a normal height now. But when I was twenty one years old, I would be the only person in town who was six foot six, and I just and I just kind of realised when I was sort of late teens, that when I walk in a room, people notice it. And kind of my voice goes along with that as well. It's a great big, loud voice. And um, around about the age of 18, 19, 20, I thought, well, how will it go with it? You can either get a stoop and pretend to be shorter and be quiet and be a mouse and sit in the corner, or just be who you are. And that's loud and big and noisy. And that kind of is a part of it. Then you start enjoying yourself. It'd be pretty weird if I was loud and big and noisy and sad. That would be an awful thing. (laughs) I can't imagine that. That doesn't really exist, does it? I love that idea that you say you were really the only six foot six person there. Back in, back, honestly, I'm quite serious when I say kids are taller now. Nowadays, normally I'll meet someone my height, pass them in the street or something like that. When I was in my teens and 20s, it was very, very rare. Very rare. And, um, yeah, we've just got fitter and healthier and tall. I'm not saying I was fit and healthy. I was just tall. Um, yeah, I love my height. I love it. Spent all my life being able to see across a room. And, you know, I used to go to meet, I wanted to do some kind of soap operas. I used to think, I used to sort of sit there talking about character. And I used to sort of think, why is everyone listening to me? Everyone's listening. <laughs> you spend a lot of time in these meetings fighting to be heard. And everyone listening. And I just thought, well, it's because... I'm like the size of the wall. <laughs> People are listening to the wall. <laughs> Were you always like that, though? Were you like that as a, as a child? No, I suppose I grew into it. I was also, I mean, we are many things, Gabby. And I was quite serious with what I was saying earlier about you become a writer in order to um, be quiet and stay at home and be, and just, it's quite a very introspective job. So maybe that's part of it as well. Most of my time, is spent being actually silent. I'm just here. To, literally, I'm at my desk now. This is where I'm, I'm typing away. And I do work very hard. I work very long hours. So um, maybe it's a response to that as well, that once you leave the desk, you go, hey, I'm free. <laughs> although, most, although I'm not, I'm not, I'm not particularly sociable either. It's the most times, I, as you have posited already, I will sit and watch TV. Ask me to a party and I'm like, oh, God, I'd rather die. Oh, I'm the same. Oh, my God. I get shy. Oh, oh a party. Oh. Oh. I haven't been to a party. When did I ask go to a party? I haven't been to a party for decades. I think about 15, 16 years or something. Marvellous. Do you say no or you say you're busy? I do now. I used to say I was busy. I used to say I was busy. And I used to laugh with my husband. That the, the one great thing about having a husband who was very ill was that you could get out of anything. Anything. I'd go, no, he's not feeling very well. And he could be on fine form and right in front of him. I'd say, oh, I'm just a bit sick tonight. And escape anything. So I've lost that excuse now. <laughs> Did Andrew mind you using him in that way? Oh, he Did loved you it. He le- well, we, no, we were two, no, we loved it. We were two peas in the pot as well. We would both much rather stay in than go out. Isn't that strange? We've got lovely friends. Of course we are. We would love seeing. But um, no, we were we were kind of, we were a perfect fit in that sense. <laughs> so do you think then that the, the, the parties, I mean, because a lot of your um, uh, dramas that you've written. I, I'm going to go back to Queer as Folk as well, but it was very much about 
the party scene about being out, being out and about. That's quite interesting yeah. as a, as um, uh, an introvert, I suppose. If I'm going to use that, I, if I can borrow that word, um, uh, mm. that that as an introvert that you are then you're writing about what's going on around you. So you have you wide eyed about it all, but you just don't want to do it yourself. I suppose yes. The, the Aquarius folk in particular came from. 10, 15 years of, I mean, I wrote that when I was 35. So it came from all those years of going out on Canal Street and watching what was going on. I consider myself so lucky that no one else wrote Canal Street first. I, I just happened to get there first, which is lucky. Um, but also I did used to love, yeah, I mean, obviously I love going out in my 20s, um, but I used to go out on my own and I used to love going out on my own. And and sometimes I'd bump into friends on Canal Street and I'd, I'd, I've also spent a life making excuses. I'd make up excuses to get rid of them. I'd be like, oh, hello, I'm just with Jim. He's over there. Bye-bye. And I'd, <laughs> for go and I'd go to another club or a different bar to be on my own just because I love being on my own and watching it all. I didn't realise that, but I was kind of storing it all in my head to go and write something about it. I, I literally wasn't conscious of that until until it happened, really. Um, but yeah, strange man, straight. There I am saying I'm loud and I enter a room and I'm, and I take over a room. And yet at the same time, I want to be on my own and stand there alone. Aren't we full of contrary impulses that we are though? Yeah, completely. That, that I was intensely shy and yet get me up on live television. Yes. Thank you. This is home. I'm home. Yes. Isn't it strange, isn't it? And also it's that it's something I've much in the modern world. Now I'm going to complain about modern days, but I, I think it's very fascinating that we live in a world now of biographies. Everyone has a bio. Everyone has a definition. And if you're if you're 14 years old, if you're eight, you have to define yourself. You have to write your bio. If it's a simple line on Instagram or if it's your Facebook profile, and you shouldn't write your own profile. It's 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 so limiting. That's when people. That's when they always walk into the Big Brother house and they say, "I don't take any nonsense. I I don't I don't take any nonsense from anyone. I say what I think. I'm that kind of person." And you sit there thinking, the more you say you're that kind of person, the more you become that sort of person. And you become that sort of person. It was a real pain because, yes, you say what you think all the time. And we're much more complicated than that. Don't give yourself a bio. Don't give yourself a profile. Especially don't give it to yourself at the age of 18 when you have no idea who you are. And I mean this not, I mean this socially, I mean this sexually as well on dating apps and stuff like that where people will describe without being blunt, that'd be what they're into. And you sit there thinking, don't, 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 who knows what you're into? You could be into anything. Um, don't, don't limit yourself. But we define ourselves and we bio ourselves like crazy now. And all of that gets, then all the algorithms jump on top of that bio. So next thing you know, you're being fed adverts that fit your bio. And so that makes you fit that definition even more. And it's like, let go, stop everyone, stop defining yourself because you can be intensely shy and immensely gregarious at the same time and you are still the same person. We contain multitudes. We are incredibly complicated things. Oh, that was a riff. No, that was fantastic. I went off on one then. No, I love that. I love that. And that's why you're a writer, because you see that. So a lot of us don't. I think it's something you have to bear in mind with writing, is that, is that you'll get a writer, you'll, you'll create a character. People will say to you, what's this character like? And you'll say, oh, she's loud, she's obnoxious, she's, 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 she's trouble. And then you stick to that definition. And then the character gets really boring because they're loud and obnoxious and trouble. In every episode, they say the same thing. They do the same stuff. And actually, when you've got a character like that, then you have to sort of say, now they're going to be shy. Now they're going to be um, selfless. And that's when they start to get interesting because we can all do anything. I always used to bear that in mind, talking of Doctor Who, we bear that in mind with the companions. It's, it's like, obviously, a Doctor Who companion kind of exists to be good and to be selfless and to save the world. So therefore, when you you need to search for those moments where they're selfish, 
where they're a bit sly, where they're a bit lazy, where they're a bit too cynical, where they're taking the mickey and then that backfires. Um, you just need to, spinning, I always call it turning, you need to keep turning a character, turning them in the light so that you, you see the different aspects all the time. It's part of the job, I think. That's very interesting because the, ne- the next thing I wanted to talk to you about was a very English scandal. I just think that was incredible. Oh, thank you. It was incredible. I mean, it was won awards all around the world and you must be so proud of that. Oh, but it was an extraordinary, yes, yes, yes. I mean, Hugh Grant, hats off to he was superb. All of them. Well, everyone, but every, the whole cast, I mean, Ben Whishaw, all Alex Jennings, yeah, Monica, Monica Dolan, amazing. Now, we were very, very, very lucky. That's, I mean, that's Stephen Freer's directing as well. He does tend to attract big names. They kind of go, all right, then we'll come and do that. But, but what a story, because I watched that story. That's a real life story, obviously. The, and the trial was in 1979, and that's when I was 16 years old. So for me, that was, it has stuck in my mind since then. That was a huge thing to, to see again, as well as being six foot six. And when I, back in those days, it was also rare to hear the word homosexual mentioned anywhere, um, anywhere at all, ever. And so, not on the six o'clock news at night with people going blah, 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 homosexual leader of a, of a political party. It was astonishing. And, and when you're obviously secretly, shyly closeted in Swansea, as I was, quite naturally, that, that's, that sets your radar pinging. It, it fills you with terror. Um, so it was you know, when, when you go through those extreme emotions watching a piece of news on BBC One, that kind of scars you with it. Or oh, good, not scars, but it brands you with it. It's something, it's made its mark on you. It's something you remember. So for all those years, I'd remember that story. And I did, every so often, I used to inquire about the rights to that, where that story should be told as a film. And it was kind of tied up for a lot, for, for many, many years. Um, the, I was, still, around about 2009, I was told the BBC Films wanted to make a version. And I was like, damn, Damn, I'd love to have written that. And then our good friend, Dominic Treadwell-Collins, uh, he was the one who tracked down a book written by John Preston, which was, I think, the definitive version of the story. And bless him, bless Dominic, um, asked me to, to write it, which was a joy. Oh, God, I was lucky to get that. I was so happy to do it. It just was so beautifully done. I mean, every single way. Congratulations on that. But then you go on to years and years, which floored me. I mean, <laughs> oh my word! It's and you were talking about notes, so people shouldn't write their bios. But but how how many conversations do we all have about stop using a filter, stop being so judgmental? It's about society now, and that's. Yes. I mean, like everybody should go and watch it. It's on iPlayer. Go and watch it again and again and it, again. Oh <laughs> yes, it's still on my iPlayer. Not many people did watch it, unfortunately. Um, but I loved it. And I was what a cast! What a cast in that! I think it's a miracle when something gets made. People might say, oh, that didn't get the viewing figures. Oh, you missed that audience. Like, it got made. I've got it. It's there. It exists. I'm very, very happy with that. Oh, so let's talk about it. it's a sin. I, I really believe that it's a sin, in my humble opinion, and you and I have talked so long and hard about how much we love television. I think this is the best thing I have ever seen. I really honestly do. Oh, <laughs> Do you know what? No pressure next time I sit down to write a script. None at all. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to be sitting here crying, weeping, blood coming out of my ears. Oh, my God. Thank you. Listen, thank you. Thank you. It's that cast, though, isn't it? It's I am so... This success is... Sorry, no, no, no. Yes, yes, but let's... This is about you. This podcast is all about you. So the what you did with the writing of these characters that you... Let us let them into our hearts instantly. We knew them so well, so quickly. And it is the only drama in my life that I've watched. I know those people 
so well. I mean, in real life, of course, I've I know those people, um, and I mean yeah. the the characters that they're portraying. I've known them for years when I was at college, yes. the years, the, the many that I've lost, the people that I visited. Um, but but those particular characters, you wrote it so beautifully that they have stayed with me. I go to sleep thinking of them. I wake up thinking of them, oh, wow. and everybody saying. <laughs> this is the most astonishing thing. This is the most um, remarkable program. It's beautiful. So from everybody who's watched it, and I haven't read one negative thing, thank you, Russell. Oh, that is absolutely overwhelming. I'm absolutely serious. None of us saw this coming. And it's an honour. It's like here we are remembering people we've lost. I mean, that's the most glorious thing is that, never mind viewing figures, never mind all, all four figures and stuff like that. It's like the conversations everywhere, the DMs I'm getting, the messages the office is getting of people just remembering the names of people and the stories of people who we lost. I think I th if you'd asked me this before transmission, I would have, if you'd said to me, maybe we've all blocked out those deaths a bit, I would have said, no, we haven't. No, we've talked about them for years. We raise charity money. We belong to HIV charities. We're good. We talk about them all the time. But clearly, actually now, I think maybe perhaps gay people talk about them more, or queer people, that, that we, you know, they're part of our memory. But actually, there's a, the world is bigger than that. And there's been this great release of memories and, and joy, actually, and remembering the fun and the good times and the Sunday mornings with your mates with a hangover. Those times we had in the 80s and 90s that um, have perhaps been... I think I'm just being an amateur psychologist here, but but, but actually it's part of my job. But it's like it's it's just been bottled up because the deaths were so horrible. It's a cruel illness. It's opportunistic and vile, and and sometimes the deaths were so awful that a little kind of silence settled over us. Respect was there, love was there, but kind of bottled up. And this release of memories and stories has been amazing, and also for a younger generation sitting down watching it, who had no idea that this happened. I kind of knew that would happen. I knew I knew that within my own family. I knew that from my nieces. I knew that, yeah, maybe people weren't as keyed into what happened if you're 18. And that's not blaming anyone. If you're 18, you're living your life, you're moving forwards. Everyone should always move forwards. I didn't spend long looking back at history. You need to get older to start looking back. And But to see a generation who are astonished at the homophobia and the treatments, and I think they're seeing... I think they're seeing terrible things happen in a in a very similar world to their own because the 80s aren't that different. The cars look different, but everything else is young people in bars having a drink and having a laugh. And, you know, it's not like watching Bridgerton. It's not like watching World War II. You're watching now, really. And to see terrible things happening in your own world has really astonished people. Oh, I could talk about it forever, Gabby. Please do. Uh, what's so amazing about it is that the way you've shaped each of the characters. So we get, we obviously people may not have watched it yet, so we don't want to give too much away, but but the beautiful relationship between Colin and and Neil Patrick Harris's character in the beginning and, and the way that that character was treated in the hospital. I, I mean, I... I mean, I've spoken to you about this before, but I used to do yes. visits and as you, as loads of us did, I had forgotten the pain and the, the disgusting way human beings were treated. I mean, utterly disgusting. We did forget, didn't we? Yeah. Oh yeah. my word. And the look in the eyes of those young men. Yes. I, I, I just, and you, you, that you captured that the director, the the actors captured it beautifully. Oh, the director, Peter Hall, the director, and and my lovely friend Phil. I did Doctor Who with uh, for many years. Phil Collinson, and that's a, I can, it's kind of worth saying that's a gay director and a gay producer, and 
I think it makes a difference. Argue with me all your life. I think that makes a huge difference. I think mm. there's an empathy and a vibration and energy running through the whole thing that just seems true. Talking about Neil Patrick Harris, he's somebody that I've adored from afar for years. Well, I, I've got obviously he's look, obviously he's brilliant. Obviously, we all know that. But I've got to say, I didn't know quite how brilliant he is. And I mean this, it was like, it's quite awesome, it's quite awesome to watch him at work. And it's effortless and the detail. He's doing an English accent, which is so spot on and perfect. I mean, you've seen him in a series of unfortunate events doing a million different accents and stuff like that. But, um, and also, what a lovely man as well. Oh, happy, really. You never know when you invite a Hollywood star to come and be part of a British production, whether it's going to work, because it's, it's a slightly smaller world over here. And he was delightful and he loved it. And we loved a really, really gorgeous experience. We were so lucky. And, you know, he's so, he, how do I say this? He's so committed to the cause. It's a drama about AIDS. And that's why he kind of sat, he gets a lot of officer work, a lot. He, he doesn't need us, but that that subject made him sit up and pay attention. That made him read the script. That made him say, this is a piece of work that has to be done. And I'm so grateful to come against telling gorgeous man. I'm so pleased to hear it because that's how I've always imagined it. Yeah. He's one of those people that <laughs> I just, I don't know why, but ever, for years and years and years, I've always thought, you're special. Yeah. Yeah, you can kind of see it in the work he chooses as well. You know, it's such a... And I know he's writing books now, he's writing children's books, and his Instagram pages are delight and full of joy and, oh, lovely. But then there's the other side, you know, you've got Richie's character, who, I, I don't want to give anything away, but what he says... He's a complicated character, he's a very complicated Very complicated, yes, but yes, he's yes, beautiful. Yeah. But the relationships that they all have, and Keely Hall's, her, her <laughs> performance is, I've never seen her do anything like that. I think there might be people. I, I don't know. It's hard to know where people are with spoilers, and even in a few months, people will be coming to coming to it from scratch. So there might be people. It's kind of my secret joy about the series. Is there might be people sitting there for the first four weeks thinking, "Well, why do Keely Hawes do this then? She's only got ten lines a week. She does them marvelously, but but she's she's bigger than this. Why?" And then you get to the last episode and stand back, everyone, move the furniture to the side because the most astonishing performance really comes is. out. And isn't she just, she's titanic in it. It's that I was, I was on set that day. Actually, I wasn't, I was on set for a while and then I went home. I thought, I'm not, I'm not going to hover. I'm not going to, I don't want to see this being done 46 times from 46 different angles. I, I know this is working. I'm going to go home and I'll watch it when it's done. And one of the great joys of my life. It's hard to, I'm smiling about such a devastating scene because it's, it's, it's awful in many ways. And, and please come and watch it. But the joy, there was such a joy and such a great performance, such an honest performance. And everyone around her, just to see the young cast sparking off Keely and Sean Dooley in there as well. Oh, it's lovely. Good times. There's, there's a moment where you, Sean behaves the way we didn't expect Sean to behave. I mean, he's, I, I mean, yes. I love Sean. I absolutely love Sean. I, all of that, there's no weak link. So everything to me is, as I said, I think it's the best thing I've ever seen on television. But there are some things that people might not know. So Jill, the character, is actually a real friend of yours and she... Plays yes. her, she plays the mother of herself. Does that make sense? Yes. My lovely friend Jill, we were 14 together in the Wesley Morgan Youth Theatre together. We used to laugh at doing plays together. We've still got catchphrases. We say, you know, like the Pink Palace gang have catchphrases. Jill and I still have daft things we say to each other. And she's been my friend for all these years, but she lived that life. She went to London. She lived in a flat. She called the Pink Palace. All her friends were gay. They were hilarious. They still are hilarious. And, and, and then the virus came along then she became a fighter and it's one of the kind of untold stories that I'm really glad you get a glimpse of and it's a sin and I kind of wish I'd been more of it actually which is how much the West End was one of the first 
bodies of people to turn around and help people with HIV and AIDS because it was the chorus boys who were disappearing. They were amongst the first. London, city centre, Soho, West End. They were the boys who started to vanish and the West End stood up and paid attention. And I know incredible stories, Gabby, about West End producers who invented jobs within their office, fictional jobs, just so that boy who was sick could have a wage coming in. <gasps> he never turned up. He was never at the desk. They invented, they are, just pay me a wage. You can't perform. We'll pay you a wage. And it, it, honestly, the, I can't name names here. I think you'll probably guess the names here. But um, incredible kindnesses that, that were shown to people when the government was ignoring it, when television was silent, when the newspapers were hostile. Up stood the West End and Broadway, actually, in New York as well, you know, all theatrical centres. I think this happened in Australia as well. They were the first to fundraise, and they still are fundraising to this day. That's the astonishing thing. So Jill, she wasn't just, she was an insight to me into the Pink Palace, but also in, into that whole world of activism, of the unsung heroes, really. They still do those shows. They still do late night cabarets and, and yes. West End Bears performances. Apparently people take their clothes off in those things, so I won't go and see that, Gabby. But, um, <laughs> I've hosted some of them, my wonder. word, my word. I bet you have, I bet, I bet. I've never been asked to perform. I find that strange. How strange. Next time. You've heard me sing. Wonderful. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and so so Jill, real life Jill, we I then cast, I based the character of Jill on Jill and then cast real life Jill as Jill's mother on screen. And what a joy. It's literally like she's gone from the chorus line to uh. a lead performer. <laughs> Finally, at 55 years old. No, she's 60 now. She was 60 this week. She won't mind me saying that. She'll love you for Amazingly. that. Um, she looks fabulous. Uh, she started up West End Cares. Was it West End Cares? Mm, it's, she's had 100 organisations, yeah. And they still are. They're, she's like emailing me today with some new scheme. She'll never stop. I mean, obviously, when the show is suddenly this this successful, what's the first thing she thinks? How can I turn this into donations? Bless her. Her first thought. Amazing. Really, what a woman. What a woman. I'm privileged to know her. And her mum was lovely. Her dad was lovely. Her brother's lovely. When we were little kids, when we were little, like, 18-year-old kids, that was the only household you could go to where you could be gay. Oh. Her mum was like, yeah, fine, put a coffee on like that. And that's in the 80s. You know, that's rare. That was rare back then. What a good, she's well brought up. She's not just a good woman. She's well brought lovely. up. Lovely. And those lovely parents, as you say. But, but I mean, all all of the characters are are beautiful, beautifully observed. Uh, is Colin you? Is uh, are you Gladys? <laughs> I know everybody says <laughs> oh, that. I think, <laughs> I think just because he's Welsh, I think that's too simple. I wish I was not that nice and innocent and sweet. But you wanted to be an actor, so are you partly Richie? You're part. You're partly part of all of them. A little bit of that. I'm kind of all of them as well. Yeah. I can be Roscoe as anyway. Yeah, oh, I, I love Roscoe. <gasps> <laughs> Good old Amari. He's absolutely astonishing. And actually. Leaving out the fact that lovely, beautiful Nathaniel is six foot seven, and I'm six foot six. So actually, if I could be anyone, I'll be him, please. The tall, willowy, beautiful one. But they all <laughs> That's are. The one, isn't he stunning? Beautiful, beautiful characters, and congratulations to to all of the performers. And I mean, obviously, future award winners. And also, it's a sin that Ollie has brought out years and years has brought out. I think is hauntingly yes. beautiful oh, isn't it that is he's done a cover version and it's 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 suddenly the song comes alive in a whole new different way and i've always loved that song i'm not that's not knocking the original it's a perfect song but it's sung as a torch song and suddenly all the sin and the guilt and the regret comes out and i listen to ollie singing and i sit there thinking i can't believe i know that man how where's that voice of an angel from incredible we are lucky to know these people ollie, ollie alexander i remember interviewing him what a lovely lovely lad and clever i mean you know, he's on it in terms of like you know he could just sit back and have a laugh he's so beautiful and so talented he could just be laughing all day but politically he's on top of it all i think 
if anyone hasn't seen it, go and look up his Glastonbury speech where he was on the main stage in Glastonbury and suddenly seized the moment and made a kind of three-minute speech about being gay and being out in the shape of the world. And it's one of the most lovely things you'll ever see. And it, it's entirely off the top of his head. That's what he's like. He's, he's pro- again, he's a star. He's made of something different and special. I keep saying in this podcast that you have this wonderful wide-eyed view of television and life and the world. And it feels that it's, it, it, your eyes are even wider now, but with, with joy, not in shock, but with joy from the reaction to this programme. I hope so. It's more complicated. It's, it's a complicated reaction to this programme. A friend of mine sent me an email saying, how do you feel? And I've been working on that email reply for about a week because it is bewildering. It's, it's a bit sad because I'm thinking about all the people that died. Um, you know, that, that, that comes flooding back. You could have done more. You sit there thinking that, and and it's, it's oh, but it's But you're it's doing it now. Reaction, you're doing it now. Yes, <laughs> I know. And good friends of mine do keep saying to me, remember to be happy. And I do. There are, I think after the first transmission, it went out on a Friday, and there was kind of a delayed reaction in my head, and then I suddenly spent all of Tuesday morning laughing. Just in the kitchen laughing. I just laughed. I put the kettle on and I laughed and I had a cup of tea and I laughed. Oh. So it, it is nice. It is lovely. And I really, I'm not being modest here. I'm so happy for that cast because I think we'll be watching that cast for the rest of our lives. We will see them in things and go, oh gosh, look at him. Look at her. Aren't they brilliant? Um, and so th- to pass that on to that generation is gorgeous. Really gorgeous. What a gift. I could talk about It's a Sin for hours and hours and hours, but also, so much more to talk about still. I'm going to go back then. So Kate Winslet, am I right in thinking that one of the first <laughs> things she ever did was with you when she was a child? Yes, she was 15 years old and she um, yeah, she was in Dark Seasons, but she still remembers a friend of mine, a recordist, the sound recordist, Julian, my lovely friend, who was the, he was the Doctor Who sound recordist. He's now the sound recordist on the Avatar movies that she's in. And she, she wandered over to his sound desk on the first day because he had a Dalek on there. So she went, oh, hello, British person like that. And she does remember fondly her days on Dark Season, um, which was a joy. I mean, there she was, just a 15-year-old kid at the time. Who would have known when we sat in those North Acton BBC rehearsal rooms that that was Kate Winslet. She was wonderful. She was brilliant then. She was brilliant at 15. And there's kind of a quietness about her. There's a centre to her, isn't there? Some people are born to that. They're born to that kind of stardom. The stars do have something about them that other people don't. It's really, it's true. You saw that in Billy as well, didn't you? With Billy playing Rose. What? No, look, I was blazing out of Billy. I think you'd, you'd, yeah. have to, you'd, have, you'd have to be facing the other way not to see that. Um, yes, and I, I know at the time like, there were some people at the time that who fussed about casting a pop star. No one in television did that. Um, and she was never just a pop star. And when she was a pop star, she was a brilliant pop star. Do you know what? I've worked a lot with pop stars. I worked with Bernie Nolan, who was delicious delightful woman, sadly missed to this day. I worked with Kylie. Uh, but now I've worked with Ollie Alexander. When you work with pop stars, you are actually working with the hardest workers of all because they are used to, they are used to getting up at 5am and flying to Germany, doing a breakfast show, singing their song, flying back and going on this morning with Phil and Holly. It's an extraordinarily tough lifestyle. And, and you have to, you have to just know yourself. You have to be yourself in order to survive it. So whenever you work with pop stars, I found that you, you, you're with truly hard workers who have got such discipline. It's a joy to work with them. Good people. You listen to music while you write. Yes. Yes. If you could, you're only allowed one track. And I've looked up your Desert Island discs. In fact, I listened to it. And uh, so you've got Kate Bush and Mr. Blue Sky. And if I, if somebody oh. had said to me, 
what sums you up, I would not have said Wuthering Heights, but I would have absolutely said Mr. Blue Sky. <laughs> Thank you. That's, that was, uh, we, yes, we played that at our wedding. Me and my husband. Oh, did well. you? Yeah, well, agree. ELO, I love ELO. How do you not love ELO? I've, it's kind of not. It's, well, it's not very cool to like ELO these days, is it? And yet they are. They're like they're like they're like the spine of Radio Two, aren't they? They are. We all know every track. They're just wonderful. So love. is that the song that you? Oh, that must bring up like, lovely memories of your wedding then as well. Well, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And it's funny, though, because it's like, I did Desert Island Discs, and I forgot one of the great loves of my life, which is Sparks. I love Sparks. You know Sparks? Yes. This town ain't big enough for the both of us. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They've got, oh, my God, they've got an album called Plagiarism. It's old now. I wrote the whole of Queer as Folk to Plagiarism. Is that right? Yes, I did. The entire thing, and that's still... An, an album that's branded into my brain. It's kind of, it's, they kind of remix all their tracks, but it's a lot of their old tracks, but done like opera. Opera and high energy are thrown together in it. And that sums me up. Opera and high energy. <laughs> there I am. I <laughs> oh, see. I love that. I love that. What makes you happy? What makes you laugh? Oh, well, people, really. Um, 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 my family makes me laugh. They make me howl. We've just got little twins now. Um, my niece has had twins and they're 19 months old. And that's, that's the family sorted for laughter for the next 10 years, really. The next 30 years. We just, uh, <laughs> then they'll get, then they'll become trouble. But like, we just sit there and laugh at what they do. People in the end, people sitting around having a lot of my mates. That's what makes me laugh in the end. And you putting glasses on everything. Your Instagram just brings me joy. <laughs> Does it? I do love doing that. <laughs> I put my my glasses on my forehead because it's an alarmingly large forehead. And um, photograph. I just discovered yesterday, Gabby. A fact. I live five minutes around the corner from the grave of Thomas Boudler. Now, do, do, do you know what it means to Boudlerize? No, I don't. Thomas Boudler was all back in whatever century he was alive. I go and read the grave. He was a man who censored pieces of art. It's like he'd censor Shakespeare. He'd take out all the sex and all the the swearing. Oh my gosh. All the, 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 yeah, it was so to Boudlerize became a verb. To Boudlerize means to censor something, to take the heart out of it, to take the guts out of it or something. And the fact that he lives five minutes around the corner from my house makes me laugh so much because I've spent my career putting all that stuff back in. Yes. <laughs> Can you imagine what he would make we of are, your things? We are the yin and the yang together. It's like, oh. I think it's hilarious. Boudlerize, it's a great, I hope I'm saying it right, Boudlerize. I love that. I love a new word as well. I want to use it today. I'm going to use it in completely the wrong context, I'm sure. Yes, um, tell them, Gabby, say you can't Boudlerize me. That's how you can use it. <laughs> but, but did anybody ever try to do that to you with some of your brilliant Channel 4 dramas? Well, uh, to be honest, I mean, having written Queer as Folk quite, quite early in my career, when I was 35, but it was quite early in my career still, that once you've written that, no one really tries to censor you after that. <laughs> they know what to expect. You no, know, they know what to expect. And there are obviously rooms I'm not allowed into because I'm going to write that sort of stuff. But, do, do you know, no, to be honest, people working in television want to push barriers and they want to open doors that haven't been opened before. It's There are good shows around. There really, really are. Do you know what's so lovely about you, Russell, is that I, I mean, I hope you carry on forever and ever doing what you do because I think you do embrace life. I just get that feeling. And as I said, you've been through awful heartbreak, but but you embrace life. I mean, when you went to LA, I sort of feel that, and I can be completely wrong because how would I know? But I feel like you got off the aeroplane and went, hello, LA, I'm here. <laughs> Please tell me you did that. 
<laughs> the trouble is, everyone does that in LA. <laughs> that's, that's what the town is like. But that's they're not all I mean, Welsh and six foot six. <laughs> but actually, yeah, I went to a town where everyone talks about television all the time. The waiters, the people in the shops, every, I mean, you know, everyone is touting, everyone is pitching. But actually, it's a television and movie town. So, God, I loved it there. I really properly loved it. Um, you know, I, I expected it to be. I think there's a lot of cynicism spoken about the place. And of course, there are deals being done. Sometimes there are lies being told. But um, actually, I tend to think actors tell those cynical stories about LA rather than behind the scenes people, because being an actor is a terrible thing to be an actor, is to be lied to an awful lot. Um, but to work in production, oh, it's the production hub of the world. I loved it. Very happy. Plus sunshine. That's what I mean. I can see you with your arms open. I've, I do feel that you're somebody who walks around with your arms open. <laughs> okay, well, I will do now. Because that, that's how I think of you. I think you're a complete joy, but I also think you're a brilliant, brilliant TV maker, oh, the way you look you. at television and you love it. I mean, like, I, I still think I probably love it more than you, but I'm not sure. And, and <laughs> you just embrace television and you want to make the world a better place and you want us all to think but you want us to enjoy the time while we're thinking. And that's what I get from you all the time. Oh, Gabby, you're on the side of the angels. Thank you. Couldn't say anything nicer. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you so much for listening. Coming up on the next episode, the brilliantly funny and quite wonderful Rob Beckett. That Gabby Roslin podcast is proudly produced by Cameo Productions. Music by Beth Macari. Please press the subscribe button and it will come straight to your phone on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you choose to listen. Also, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. <laughs>